Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Paul McGann, and I play the Doctor on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the topping task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, you know, 20s slang, <laughs> that sort of thing. My name is Tony Witt and today we have an equally topping three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. <laughs> hello, hello. Yes, Topping, which is one of the many uh, innuendos that were found in this book. So. <laughs> <laughs> which Jim Sangster warned us about, come to think of it. He did, he did. He did, last week. And finally, there's our special guest, the host of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast and co-host of the Trap One Podcast, Jason Miller. Hello, Jason. Greetings, greetings, everybody. I might as well just leave that in because everyone expects me to do that sort of stupidity these days. Okay. <laughs> If you like what you're hearing, though I sincerely doubt it, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS. But not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them, you store them all in a priest hole deep inside your stately manor. Just to say thank you for willing to help us. <laughs> just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. You can tell I'm tired because the normal spiel is going down the tubes. Or you've had a couple of cocktails and you're uh, a little uh, numb in the tongue. Yes, mm. yes. Taking a cocktail to a bath sounds really lovely right now. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons: Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby. Da <laughs> Good God. Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Milton Welling, and Louise Dennis. Thank you all. 
Thank you, thank you. Uh, Tony, oh. I think it's time to let your evil twin out of the attic and let him take over the hosting for the next hour. <laughs> yes. Set him free. The only problem is his tongue has been ripped out, so he'd probably do an even worse job. No, he wouldn't. He'd do so much better at this. Just clicking along. He'd just click along, exactly. <laughs> that is terrible, but I love it. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7 k m a s p r in fact we expect you to we continue our discussion of peter davison's first season as the doctor as we discuss terence dudley's novelization of black orchid without further ado here are some fast facts Doctor Who Black Orchid, adapted by Terrence Dudley from the script that aired from 3182 to 3282. Published by Target Books in February 1987. As of this recording in April 2023, this title is out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 144 pages. Yes, you heard that right. This story aired over two consecutive nights in March of 1982, because despite the length of this novel, it is indeed two-parter. I find that hard to believe, but... Yeah, it, it is hard to believe, but once you've seen it, it's hard to believe this novel exists. True. <laughs> Terrence Dudley has never written a script that he couldn't expand into more than 140 pages, and he does the same here. In fact, we will see him do this once again later on down the line. In fact, he makes reference to that book in this one, even though it happens later. You may also notice this is not a photo cover. And that's because until the release of Resurrection of the Daleks a few years back, this was for the longest time the last Peter Davison story to be novelized, five years after it aired in 1987. Basically because no one was clamoring for it. <laughs> Despite the fact it's not a fan-favorite story, and both Peter Davison and Janet Fielding are on the record as saying they don't like it either, this book was considered the second best novelization released in 1987. And before anyone asks, I have no idea what it came in behind, but there were some really good books done that year, mostly Hartnell novelization, so I'm betting it was one of those. You got The Reign of Terror, you got The Massacre, you got Ambassadors of Death, which I love. There's a lot of good choices that year. Yeah, I'm almost certain it was The Massacre. Because that's a standout from that year, but that's also the year we got Space Museum, so... <laughs> yeah. It probably will surprise no one to discover that Dudley was developing this story for another show completely unrelated to Doctor Who. And when he submitted it originally to Christopher H. Bidmead, Bidmead turned it down exactly because it had no science fiction elements in it. But Producer John Nathan Turner wanted to have more scripts giving individual companions a focus, as this one does for Nyssa. Kinda. And since he had also done away with six-part stories, he also needed two-parters. That, and there hadn't been a pure historical story in the show since The Smugglers, because of course The Visitation doesn't count as a historical. Though most fans can tell you exactly why we haven't had a pure historical story since The Smugglers. They're a bit on the boring side. In our usual Matthew Waterhouse watch, the only thing notable about this story is that Waterhouse didn't want to participate in the choreography for the dancing, so it was his suggestion that Adric would be more interested in the food. It's actually not a bad idea, otherwise he seems to have behaved himself this time for once. Hmm. Yeah, which is surprising, to be honest. All right, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Jason, would you be willing to do the honors? 
You know, you're lucky because for the last six minutes, my cat Smudge was sitting on the book, and at the exact moment that you asked me to read it, she got off the book. (laughs) (laughs) I have an affinity with cats. So she must have a preternatural understanding of English. Yes, as all cats do, except when they don't want to understand you, like when you tell them to get off the book. (laughs) If I had said it, we'd be in for a world of trouble, but because you said it, I now have the back cover available. (laughs) On a lazy June afternoon in 1925, the TARDIS materializes at the tiny railway station of Cranley Halt. Warmly welcomed by the local gentry, the time travelers look forward to a well-deserved rest from their adventures. After a stunning performance at a friendly cricket match, the Doctor, together with Keegan, Adric, and Nyssa, is invited to a splendid masked ball by Lady Cranley and her son Charles. But a dark menace haunts the secret corridors of Cranley Hall. And before the ball is over, the quiet summer will be shattered by the shocking discovery of a brutal murder. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Well, two murders, actually, but who's counting? (laughs) No one cares about Digby. (laughs) No one cares about Digby. Three murders on television, two in the book. Oh, that's right. There are three killings in the book. That's right, because Latoni doesn't survive the TV version, which is, oh, yeah. We already know what Allison's first impression of this book was because her email to me when this was sent to her was, I was considering joining you for this recording, but then I beheld that cover. (laughs) So that's her first impression. (laughs) What was yours, Dalton? I don't know what her issue was. I mean, he's just shrugging. (laughs) "Eh, Black orchid? You know, the last story had this dead-eyed mask on the android, and here we are with another dead-eyed mask on this Puro clown costume. So we'll see if the next story has one as well. Excellent. Our contingency plans can go ahead. Yeah, reading the back cover, I immediately kind of thought about Agatha Christie, murder mystery, just kind of not anything that I was super excited about. The Max Ball had potential for some hijinks and they did play out kind of how I expected with, of course, mistaken identities. But yeah, not not anything that I was raring to read about. And once I started reading, I wish the book was about 100 pages shorter than it is. Yes, and it probably could have been if all the cricket had been taken out. Oh, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I want to talk about that cover again for a minute, and then I'll yeah, come yeah. back to the story, because I want to talk about this notion of synchronicity. Mm-hmm. So, Tony, you have a Targets podcast. I have a Targets podcast. <laughs> I've been on your show. You've been on my show. However, you're going in story order, and you started about six or seven years ago. I'm going in publication order, and I started about a year and a half ago. Because the publication order does tend to have groupings of books entering the range at a certain time, I always knew there was going to be a moment when we synced up and we released almost the same episode on the same day. (laughs) We are in a moment of incredible synchronicity right now, Tony. Ask me why. Why? Two weeks ago, you released The Visitation (laughs) with Jim Sangster. Yes. Two weeks from now you were going to be recording an episode on a different book with Jim Sangster. (laughs) You released an episode today. I released an episode today. Next week, I'm releasing an episode called The Visitation. Mm -hmm. And two weeks from today, which is the same day that you record with Jim Sangster, 
I'm going to be releasing an episode with Jamie Sangster. <laughs> so we are entering this glorious era of mutual cooperation. So while you're in the Peter Davison era, and I start the Peter Davison era next week, as Visitation is the first one in publication order, yes. we are now talking about in publication order the last Peter Davison book of the original Target line. But mm-hmm. that's not where the synchronicity ends. Okay. Because we are not recording this in your living room because I am 1,200 miles away. We are recording this on Zoom. And we do not have our cameras on, which is a good thing because I'm having a bad hair day. <laughs> but my Zoom photo and my camera is off is me coaching my kids' softball team for the St. Francis Xavier League in Brooklyn. And I am holding aloft a fluorescent yellow softball. The cover of Black Orchid <laughs> is Peter Davis and I assume in the Piero Clown costume. Maybe it's the secret villain who wears the same costume later in the story. But he's standing in front of the TARDIS, so it's probably Peter Davison. Mm-hmm. And he's juggling, not one, not two, not three, not seven. <laughs> he's juggling nine cricket balls. So my Zoom cover photo is the polite for mixed company version of the Black Orchid cover. <laughs> <laughs> but instead of juggling nine balls, I only have one. Got it. Okay. <laughs> and... Probably one other bit of synchronicity in your photo, you're coaching your kids. And my photo, my Zoom photo is my daughter. So my kid is in there, but I'm not coaching her on anything yet. Yeah, that's probably stretching it a little too far. I blame the deep state for all of this, Jason. I think that's the reason why this is happening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as a federal civil servant and a member of the deep state, I uh, think maybe I arranged this to happen behind the scenes. Probably did. Probably did. I knew there was some reason why I wanted to do Black Orchid right now, apart from the fact that (laughs) it was the next one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's backtrack then, and I'm going to return your show to you, and I'm going to answer your question now. I appreciate that. Okay. (laughs) So did you first see this? (laughs) My Twitter handle is Doctor Who Novels, DR Who. There's another dude on Twitter who goes by Doctor Who Novels, D-O-C-T-O-R Who. He is doing right now a series of polls, not on the novels, but on the actual series. And he's going doctor by doctor, mm-hmm. and he's having polling matchups. He's taking two random stories from each doctor and having a poll. And eventually there'll be a, there'll be a grand finale and a, and a grand winner. Mm-hmm. So a couple of months ago, he was in the middle of the Pertwee era. And every single poll, no matter which story you voted for, at least three people would say, well, I want to like this Pertwee story, but it's two episodes too long. It's just a common refrain, and it showed up for every single John Pertwee six-parter that showed up in the poll. Mm. What cracks me up about this is John Nathan Turner takes over the show in 1980, right? Mm-hmm. And he says to all these Pertwee haters, I get you. So it's under John Nathan Turner that we no longer have six-part stories. We go down to two-parters, and a little bit later on, we go down to three-parters. John Nathan Turner is saying, I'm going to give you shorter serials. Nobody is ever going to say this story is two episodes too long. So, this is what this is why I love Doctor Who fan, and by fan I mean many fans. JNT gives us three two-part stories in each of Peter Davison's three seasons, and what happens? Fandom hates them. So for <laughs> Black Orchid, people are going to say it's two episodes too long. <laughs> I have been on other podcasts where I have defended the King's Demons, and I'm usually alone in the wilderness on that one. Mm. I think The Awakening is probably the most popular of the three, and I love it too, but. I am a big fan of the Peter Davison two-parters, which is a problem because you know who's not a fan of the Peter Davison two-parters? 
Peter Davison and Janet Fielding. Right. <laughs> when this one first came out on DVD about 15 years ago, the person who was hired to do the text commentary clearly hated the story, and for all of Part 2 has literally nothing to say. Minutes at a time go by in Part 2 where the text commentator isn't reporting on anything except to make fun of some of the things that are happening on screen. Wow. That is fortunately corrected for the Blu-ray release, which gives us a more traditional production note commentary. But the last thing that Peter and Janet say as they're exiting part two on the DVD commentary audio, we're sorry if you enjoyed it because they spent the last 45 <laughs> minutes bashing it. I think it's great. I mean, <laughs> as a murder mystery, it's a little simple because there's only one suspect. Mm -hmm. And I'm not crazy about the idea of George being stuck in the attic for all those years like Bart Simpson's brother Hugo <laughs> and I don't think the ending is great where he dies tragically yeah. it's lazy storytelling on Doctor Who because the bad guy almost always dies at the end I prefer mm -hmm. a little more of a, of a sunny worldview but first of all Doctor Who's strength is its diversity that's why it's now banned in the state of Florida <laughs> <laughs> but I love the fact that you have in the middle of JNT, right after we've left the Christopher H. Bidmead era, we have this historical. And it takes place in the jazz age where Doctor Who rarely goes, and it's got a kicking soundtrack. And part one is the TARDIS crew having fun, which rarely happens when Tegan is around, because fun is not <laughs> Tegan's middle name. And for those of you who think that Matthew Waterhouse is the worst thing to happen to Doctor Who, this is an Adric light story. Yes. I, I like Adric for the most part, and I think Matthew Waterhouse was really unfairly treated by everybody in, in production and for large portions of Phantom, but if you don't like his character, he's not in this story. So that's, that's another gift. So mm -hmm. I think when I first saw Black Orchid, I liked it. Every time that I've watched it since then, I've liked it. And maybe I'm alone in the wilderness again, but I think stories like this should be praised for their creativity, even if the execution is not always perfect. I would tend to agree, though I was telling Dalton before we started recording that the last time I watched this was in preparation for this, and I actually zipped through it. Not as far as, you know, enjoying it. I mean, zipping through it. I fast-forwarded through the bits that I didn't like, and that <laughs> meant I was fast-forwarding through most of it, because... I've always found this story just to be intensely boring, and I think the reason why I think it, it's intensely boring is for some of the same reasons you like it. And it's because it's set in the 20s, which is a time period that I'm interested in, but not in Britain. I'm more interested in the 1920s in America. It is a murder mystery in Agatha Christie mode. The only problem is it's a murder mystery in 1920s Agatha Christie mode. Those are not her best written books. It's a very Tommy and Tuppence type thing, and unfortunately, as you pointed out, there's only one murder suspect, and we already know he can't have done it because we've been with him the whole time going through the walls of the house. So, yeah, I have my problems, except, weirdly enough, those problems don't actually transfer to the book. I have completely different problems with the book. So, <laughs> we should probably talk about, first of all, what we like about this book because, I mean, it was voted the second best book in 1987. So obviously there's something to like about it. You know, I was having trouble kind of thinking about something that I liked, but I do like that the characters don't seem to be sniping at each other as much. You know, the companions yes. seem to be enjoying themselves. And, mm -hmm. you know, I enjoy seeing Adric being kind of that silly teenager that we talked about last time, but it not being something that's meant to like 
make him look bad. I mean, I remember being a teenager and having a voracious appetite and like wanting to eat a lot of food. And, you know, he's at this fancy party where there's all kinds of different things that he's never even seen or been able to try. So yeah, of course he's going to chow down on every damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I I liked that. I liked seeing Tegan dance. I I loved the visual of her doing the Charleston. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's just like that kind of thing is a nice change from the past couple of stories where we've really seen the companions like at each other's throats and it feels really kind of uncharacteristic for them. Like there's always going to be a little bit of tension but it just seemed like ultra nasty for no Mm -hmm. good reason. Yeah. They finally put that aside for this story, even though they'll kind of pick it right back up for the next story for a little bit. But yeah, you actually get the sense that maybe the story was fun to film until of course you hear Peter Davison and Janet Fielding talk about how cold they were the whole time because they were filming the summer garden party in October. Oh man! <laughs> so the outside scenes, you can tell that they are in these fancy dress clothes, but they are freezing. So when Tegan's doing the Charleston, Janet Fielding is probably dancing just to stay warm. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty ridiculous. But yeah, I will say this, that Terrence Dudley has captured why these people like each other and why they travel with each other mm-hmm. in a way that really hasn't come across in a lot of the books since we started the Davis era. Mm, Yeah, definitely not. I came with a list of three things that I like about it. Okay. So I will start off with number one, Tegan. Mm. I'm going to cheat a little bit because for this show, you have not read the next Terrence Dudley two-parter novelization yet. That's going to come up in about six or seven more books. Yep. But Dudley was writing them out of order. Now, Canine and Company was released the same year as this, but King's Demons had already come out. So if you're reading them in publication order, Tegan comes across horribly in King's Demons, right? She is whiny. She is described in all sorts of pejorative terms relating to females. Terrence Dudley was probably the oldest person ever to write a Target novelization. He was in his early 60s. He came from a different era. Right? Maybe he thought, Jokes about women were funny. I don't know. He's been deceased for a long time, so we're never going to find out. But Mm -hmm. it can make that other book uncomfortable to read. Right. This one comes second, and all of a sudden, somebody seems to have told him, by the way, we we don't do this in the 1980s. Tegan is much more enjoyable in this book, and a lot of stuff is filtered through her POV. And I'll talk about that more in my second point. But obviously, when you're turning a 45 minute story into a 137 page novelization, you add some extra scenes and dialogue and moments along the way. He adds this moment in the part two material where Tegan insists on being arrested as an accessory of the doctor so they can stay with him, which doesn't happen on television. That gives her a nice bit of agency, which you wouldn't get in the previous Dudley book and which you would not get in the novelization. So Tegan, I think, is a big plus for this book, and that's point one Mm -hmm. that I like. She's vastly improved. You're right. For the second point is cricket. All right, I'm an American. We're all American. I've spent the grand total of 10 days in my life in England, so I don't know much about the rules of cricket. I am a baseball guy. I was a baseball fan before I was a Doctor Who fan. I am quite possibly the only person who's been named in the dedication of both a Doctor Who book and 
the baseball publication. Oh. And I'm probably one of the few Doctor Who fans who's a card-carrying member of the Society for American Baseball Research. Oh, my. Hmm. That being said, I know <laughs> very little about cricket. And this book comes out shortly after the Mets win the 1986 World Series. This comes out at the peak of my baseball and Doctor Who fandom at the same time. This book explains how cricket works. And that was a tremendous help for me because when I had been watching it on television, I had no idea what was going on. I know that supervisually or superficially, as some people say, people who like to pronounce the word correctly, (laughs) superficially... The cricket pitch resembles a baseball field. You have a bowler for a pitcher. You have a batsman. You have a ball. You have what do you what do you call it? You have you have a home run fence in baseball. You have the pavilion where you know a home run in baseball is a straight six in cricket. I didn't understand any of that from watching the television. No. So the book, Tegan becomes our narrator. Tegan becomes a cricket fan for the book, and she is gleefully explaining everything to Nissa. So the same way that I was able to learn baccarat from reading Casino Royale, I was able to learn Ooh. cricket. Yes. For reading this book. <laughs> and then the third point is, yes, you can't do a 1920s pastiche without a racist stereotype. Mm. Everything that the television does wrong about Latoni, they get right in the book. Yes. Because on TV, he's treated as a servant and Lady Cranley is ordering him around. And it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. In the book, he is not a servant. He is a visiting dignitary. Oh, whatever Tony drank earlier is now catching. <laughs> In the book, she treats Latoni as a visiting dignitary. Yes. And on television, he's killed. In the book, his life is saved. Spoiler alert for 40-year-old novel. In the book, his <laughs> life is saved by the very person who kills him on television. Yep. So that, I think, makes the book better than the TV because it has a better ending. Any problem that you have in the ending is by and large patched up or elaborated on in the book. So if I had to choose which version of the story I like better, this is the version I like better because it has a slightly better ending. Yeah. And I agree with two of those three things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I suspect Dalton does too. And I know which one he's disagreeing with as well, but we'll get to that. I completely agree. For me, this is the definitive version of the story because the television version, while it does have its good moments, it pales in comparison to what Dudley is doing right in this book. He has corrected so many things that he probably just couldn't nail down properly in a 50-minute teleplay. That you have the racist stereotypes, as you were talking about. You've got Latoni dying at the end, even though if he's the one who rescued George, then why on earth would he kill him? In fact, that entire dynamic is much better because on screen you also get the sense that he's not so much George's friend as his jailer. Mm. Yeah, And that is borne out by the fact that George gets tied up in the second episode rather than being drugged. I mean, the drugging actually makes it seem a little bit more like, oh, we're trying to keep him calm and put him to sleep so that he's not bothering anyone. But the entire time you can tell that Latoni's feeling really bad about having to do it. Whereas on screen, he ties the bastard up and starts reading a book. And that hides the key on him. Mm. (laughs) So it's like, okay, he might have had that coming. But you would not believe that in the book. It's a much better dynamic. Far better. And 
I have to say, as much as I've already said that I don't really like British 1920s, I do like any work that looks at the social mores of the time and says, look at how weird this is. Mm. Look at how the upper crust acted. Look at the way they saw themselves as ultra-privileged and didn't question it. Or how they acted when confronted with something they didn't understand. It was considered bad form to ask a question about it, so that's why the Doctor and company are able to do what they do, Mm. which is essentially be imposters at this game that they had really no right to go to. Yeah, it really shows how they're kind of insulated from most of the rest of society. Absolutely. And that's much better. There's so much more material with Anne and George. In fact, that sequence where she wakes up in the room with him and is moved to tears by the fact that he's in so much pain, that doesn't happen on screen. Right. And I love that to bits. It really makes her anger at the family later much more justified because she's like, you're kidding me. You not only allowed me to accuse the doctor of something that he couldn't possibly have done because now we know who it was, but you've been hiding my former fiancé from me for how long? Ridiculous. But she still ends up (laughs) staying with Charles. Of course she does, because who else is she going to (laughs) marry? I mean, think about it. it. It actually makes perfect sense within the social mores of the time, because she's already lost one fiancé to the dark recesses of Africa. Oh, but she's going to then lose a second fiance to a scandal. No one would ever want to marry her because they would see her as the poison pill, not the Cranleys, even though they're definitely the poison pill here. That's true. Looking at her situation through the lens of today is, yeah, totally different. She is in a tough situation. So Yeah. And I love the fact that Dudley addresses even the fact that the footman who ends up dying ends up dying because of his hesitancy to help Anne, because as a footman, he's not really allowed to do anything that would bring embarrassment to the house. So if he sees one party guest attacking another one inside the house, he still has to be discreet about it. And it's only when she calls him by name that he goes over and tries to intervene and doesn't intervene quite fast enough, and that's how George kills him. It's like, God, these are not things that we would ever think about. But Dudley obviously has in the intervening, what, five years between the time this aired and the time that he wrote this book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's much more fleshed out and in a good way, generally, except when it isn't. But I'll I'll get to those (laughs) things, obviously. I would say something else that I enjoyed and thought was really well done was the prologue. It set the scene and kind of got us inside the atmosphere of this manor. And you start off with this really creepy feeling and it kind of dissipates once we get past that. Once we get the doctor and we get the cricket game and even most of the fancy dress party, it's it's kind of light. And it's not even until, you know, we hear about the servant being killed that it gets that serious tone again. Yeah. And that's another one of those fixes 
there's a little bit of those atmospherics in the televised version when it first begins because you're kind of thrown into it. But this throws you into it a lot better, I think. Mm -hmm. That prologue is really something. And I know I gave Terrence Dudley a lot of stick for his prose in K9 and Company, but mainly it's because I so detest K9 and Company, I couldn't think of anybody making that any better. (laughs) Whereas here, his prose really fits and does so quite well. Even little fixes like that weird moment, and Jason knows what I'm talking about, that weird moment on screen where they're all ordering drinks and Tegan orders a cocktail, she orders a screwdriver, and Nissa says, I'll have the same. And Charles steps in and says, just milk for the children. And it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Adric's a child, yes, but Nissa? She's the same age as Anne, seemingly. So why? No, the doctor steps in and says, oh, no, they're having the same as me. We'll have lemonades all around because the last thing we need is to have Nissa drunkenly going on about the master killed my entire family and then took out all of the two Oriots. You could just see that being a horrible day. So, yes. Sorry, that was an attempt at a joke that didn't go anywhere. But these are better. It's right, though. Yeah. Yeah. Little fixes all the way through here, which is just tremendous. And every once in a while, I would see something and think, oh, this is great. Like Adric being able to recognize Nyssa because he's been around her for so long that he can tell exactly what her body language is. Right. And that's just great. That's just lovely. You had mentioned the prose, so let's talk about that. Dudley does fall into the unfortunate habit of adding at least one adjective for every single noun and every single sentence in every single paragraph of the book. Now, this is good because you have to fill out the book's length. You can't release a 60-page novelization. It has to be a certain minimum length. So extra words and extra adjectives fill up the word count. That's great. But it's also a dreadful chore for the audiobook reader. So I've picked out three sentences in the book that I think highlight what Dudley is trying to do. And I think it was Allison in your Canine and Company episode says that at times the book resembles one of those fake novels written for high school students prepping for the SAT <laughs> college entrance exam yes. because it's just an exercise in vocabulary words that only appear on college entrance exams and don't get used in real life. Right. So he'd had no right to penetrate the secret passages of Cranley Hall, but his protean curiosity demanded satisfaction about the nature of any fugitives seeking sanctuary here. This is not the way people speak in real life. (laughs) And I know we're past the era where Terrence Dix is writing more than half the books for any given season, but Terrence Dix would never have written a sentence like that. No. And with good reason. Yes. But there are times, and these are my next two sentences, where I think that Terrence Dudley is almost lampooning himself. Now, he certainly didn't know that there was going to be a lush line of Target audiobooks and unabridged readings of these things set to music and very, very well done by Michael Stevens over at BBC Audio. He didn't know these were going to be narrated. But there is a British fantasy novelist who's made billions of dollars off of her work, and we're not going to name her because uh, (laughs) she's a transphobe. (laughs) However, she made it a point in every single book to write a sentence, the same sentence, that her audiobook narrator, Stephen Fry, was not 
able to say. <laughs> and I think Terrence Dudley is doing the same thing here because here's one sentence fragment. A danger, a deadliness in the deliberate descent. Oh. And here's the other one. I'm not sure if this is a joke or if he actually wrote this and didn't realize what he was doing. The doctor looked back penitently at the perspiring policeman. <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, yes. So, yeah, I like the vocabulary and the alliteration is great if it's meant in jest. <laughs> it yes. is an it is an odd look. It is an odd look. It is. Mm. It is also the first Doctor Who book we've ever had that uses the word ejaculated. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but it is in the British nineteenth century sense of exclaimed. So the Doctor ejaculates in this book. Yeah. No. <laughs> no one was doing that in prose in nineteen eighty seven. And Adric masticates. He does masticate. <laughs> 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 oh lord well he's probably excited about being asked to dance by another guy which i assume was what jim was talking about last week when he said um that sequence coming up mm-hmm. you have to admit stuff like that is brilliant but you're right the prose <sighs> dudley's prose is very purple Extremely yes. so. And it may indeed be. Profusely purple. Profusely purple, indeed. <laughs> and I think you're right, Jason. I think he might be sending himself up just a little bit. Or maybe he's sending up the prose of 1920s murder mysteries because a lot of that would have been in this vein. Right. Kind of. But yeah, at times it's really lovely. But at times you get things like something I wrote down. Adric and Nyssa held back, not because they were more apprehensive of the Doctor's wrath than Tegan, but because they had more faith that he knew what he was doing. Unlike Tegan, they shared galactic experience with the Doctor, a sort of metaphysical mother's milk. It's like, what the hell? (laughs) What does that mean? Metaphysical mother's milk? He's doing it again with the alliteration. Yes. It's like he had a literary device checklist that he was just like going down and like, yes, I got that, I got that, I got that. Like, come on. And I refuse to think that the doctor of all people, seeing somebody charging down the stairs and menacing everybody with a fire going on in the building, would be thinking a terrible irony that most of man's humanity to man was at the invocation of jealous gods in all their many seductive guises. What? <laughs> yeah. No. All right, no. let me then, I'm going to lighten the tone with some sentences that I liked, because again, I okay. enjoyed reading this book, <laughs> and there are some sentences in here that I think are actually good. Mm-hmm. So the doctor is about to get involved, which is never a good idea. Of course, we wouldn't have much of a show without it. <laughs> but he goes inside the doctor's head, and he thinks, the doctor had gambled on the maxim that fortune favors the brave, and hoped that it extended to the foolhardy. That's a good line. <laughs> yes. That sums up the doctor pretty well. Agreed. It's not all profusely purple polished prose that makes the reader perspire no (laughs) that's true that's definitely true (laughs) yeah it's hit or miss isn't it it's either really really good or it's really really bad and the weird thing is it's all one prose style it's very much in the vein of it was a dark and stormy night suddenly a shot rang out the maid screamed it's got that same sort of Bulwer-Lytton type thing going on, except 
maybe he is making fun of it. In fact, one of the uh, Goodreads reviewers talks about this, the fact that you get lines like, Once again, fate had directed the doctor's steps towards mysterious violence and deadly danger, but fate couldn't be relied upon to direct his steps from the secret labyrinth. Uh, it's hard to tell. From sentence to sentence, it can either be really good or just really... Mm. Questionable. Yeah. Yes. The whole thing needs to be edited. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I'm doing my show in publication order rather than story. Number one, because you're already doing story order. But <laughs> it's interesting to watch the way the Target books reinvent themselves every couple of years because mm -hmm. the 1974-75 books are very, very long and they add lots of stuff that didn't happen on television. Then you get into the era where the books get much, much shorter because they're writing 10 of them a year instead of four a year and it's mm -hmm. one person writing nine out of the 10. So, for example, I'm covering The Visitation next week. That book is only 113 pages of text. So right. now we're into the late 80s. This is a 1987 book. If you look at the 87 books, they're all about 140 pages long. So they're all carrying a lot more weight than the books of the early 80s. But also, since Terrence Sticks is only going to write one book in the entirety of 1987, you're bringing in a lot of old authors who had written one Doctor Who script 20 years ago. And now they're coming back to write for the line again. And many of them are not full-time novelists, so they only have a passing familiarity with what makes good prose. So mm -hmm. you're in a 12-month stretch where Paul Erickson, who wrote one story in the 60s, comes back and writes a novel. Peter Ling did one story in the 60s, comes back and writes a novel. Glyn Jones, who wrote one story in the 60s, comes back, writes a novel. Donald Cotton comes back and writes a novel. John Lucarati. And The Massacre is a good book, but it has even more run-on sentences than this one. <laughs> and then you have Ian Stewart Black, who did three stories. He comes back. And then later in 1987, and I know Dalton has not yet had the pleasure, but we are soon, later this year, to get a novelization by the Pippin Jane Baker. Oh. In fact, in 1987, we're going to get two novelizations by Pippin Jane Baker. So while you guys are doing this in – story order, and you've gotten through most of the 87 books a long time ago, and you have a few yet to come. When you look at 1987 as a whole, the books are longer, but the prose is not always up to the task. Mm -hmm. And that's why Nigel Robinson himself makes it a point to write a book a year, because you always know you're going to get terrific prose. Then he comes and does The Time Meddler, which comes out in October of 87. Mm-hmm. That's one problem with doing these in story order, because doing them in story order, and both Dalton and Allison have talked about this, and so have I, that run of Terrence Dick's only books is just a killer. You run into it, too, when you're doing it in publication order, because that's another place where they synchronize. But, yeah. The 87 books, you get most of the uh, Hartnell stuff, and there's such a variety to those books compared to what we end up getting throughout most of the uh, Fourth Doctor's era. So this is one of those books that stands out because it is so unusual compared to the books around it. Mm -hmm. I suspect the reason why people like this book so much in 1987 is exactly because they were expecting to hate it or just think, eh, they were expecting to shrug like that guy on the cover does. It's like, <laughs> eh, it's Black Orchid, why would I care? And then they saw that it was 144 pages and thought, oh, and decided to read it and thought, oh, because they're British, primarily. 
They like cricket, so they're not bored to tears by that whole lengthy diatribe about cricket, as I was, and I suspect Dalton may have been too, because I I used to be a baseball fan, Jason, not so much anymore, (laughs) and never understood cricket. So that's one of the flaws. One of the big flaws in this book for me is that lengthy cricket sequence, which also bores me to tears when I watch it on television, even though it's like three minutes. But at least it's only five minutes on TV, whereas in the book, it's uh, yeah. a couple of dozen pages. It's like 30 pages. Yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. There's a point where Dudley mentions how Nyssa is bored, <laughs> and I noted, I was like, me too, <laughs> yes. because it shouldn't be that long. I don't need to have a play-by-play of a whole game of cricket. No. It could have been three pages. Right. I I suspect what Dudley was doing with that, though, is with the whole business of the Doctor breaking a record and all of that, he wanted to show that not only is the Doctor a good cricket player, he is an excellent cricket player, so that everything that follows afterwards, he's able to get away with it because he did such a spectacular job in that game. The only problem is, if you know nothing about cricket, (laughs) you kind of miss that point. It's not as impressive. Well, and and they were already kind of in the mood to like him and accept him anyway though even before the cricket game he's not really giving a full explanation of who he is they just refer to him as the doctor we get two doctor who questions in this book of, of people questioning who he is yes the interesting bit about him breaking the record is okay he's he's great at cricket but again that could have been the paragraph Mm-hmm. Like it could have been an after the fact kind of mention that, you know, they played the game of cricket. The doctor did an amazing job, broke a record that no one had ever heard of, even in professional play. And it could have been <laughs> glossed over because I don't feel like it has that much of an impact on the rest of the story. No, not to that degree. Because even once he's accused of murder, they are so quick to even drop any of their admiration of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even without confusing him for Smutty's friend that was sent to play cricket with them, they already kind of liked him. And then they think he murdered someone. And then Lady Cranley just is like, oh, yeah, he, he did it. Yeah. And she's so quick to like stab him in the back. So it doesn't matter if they liked him for winning cricket or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like that's 30 pages that just didn't need to be there. No. I've got two points then to follow up. So – There's a really good line in the book that I flagged about the way the doctor's cricketing skills play into the 1920s comedy of manners. Sir Robert frowned. He was deeply worried that such an exemplary cricketer appeared not to have an exemplary character to match. It denied a whole code of ethics, contradicted a whole way of life. That's a pretty important sentence because your cricket skills are deemed an extension of your character in this 1920s drawing room world that Dudley is writing for. Yeah. So you need all that cricket stuff to set up that line. My second point, this is much more important. What do you have to do in life as a grown man to be given the nickname Smutty? (laughs) There's a whole backstory there begging to be written, and it just never gets told how he became Smutty. You imagine this is a guy who has more than a few – scandals to his name i have suspect he was not very good about his hygiene and managed to get a lot of chimney dust on him because that's smut mm-hmm. mm. so i i think that would have been it there is a line about nissa feeling like her yeah she had smut on her nose very different connotation to the american reader yes. oh oh yes oh yes 
and then we're back to the ejaculation line. But you're absolutely right, Jason. That whole thing is Dudley's rather good expose of the way these people think that the landed gentry of the 1920s are all about manners and all about character and all about topping what what and all of that and how easily it falls apart when they're confronted with something that they don't understand and yet they still take it in their stride when they're taken into the TARDIS which is just hilarious I always thought it was absolutely hilarious that all these years the Doctor has not wanted anyone to go into his TARDIS or know who he is or what have you and he's like oh yeah come on in kind of a brilliant moment that's one of the big things that i did not like about this story too <laughs> really not that it was played out badly or anything but it seemed so uncharacteristic again like you said the doctor spent so much time guarding the tardis and being very strict about who knows about it and comes inside and the story he's just like yeah let's do it and i'll take you on a ride yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you're right. It is really quite odd, which is how you can tell that Terrence Dudley is not used to writing Doctor Who, Mm. because it's not a choice that any of the other Doctor Who writers would make. Now, that being said, it's going to happen again in a two-parter coming up. So it's like, okay, maybe there's something about two-parters that causes this to be a narrative necessity, because how else are you going to get them out of a jam when you only have 50 minutes to play with? And not to spoil the next Terrence Dudley book, but a similar thing will happen in the next Terrence Dudley book in a way that it did not happen in the television story from which the next yes. Terrence Dudley book comes. Yes, exactly. And we need to talk about that very briefly without spoiling anything. I should probably just ask Dalton directly. Dalton, do you remember a mention about the Doctor not being sure if the Time Lords had actually sent him, though why they would ever send him into this situation? I, I don't even know why there would be a reason to do that (laughs) but he remembers that they sent him in regards to the master and to king john there is a line about that and i found it odd because i was like i don't remember that being in the story because it hasn't happened yet (laughs) (laughs) because it hasn't happened yet terrence dick uh terrence dicks terrence dudley terrence dicks would never do this terrence dudley having written the novelization of the king's demons which actually aired after this, is remembering that novelization. (laughs) And so he has the Doctor suddenly being able to peer into the future. It's like, okay, great. Thanks for ruining your next book, dude. (laughs) Hopefully we'll have forgotten about it by then. But yeah, that's exactly it. It's just a massive, massive blooper. A notorious blooper, to be honest. But this is this is going to happen in these 1987 books. If you read them in story order, there are several Hartnell books that spoil the whole Time Lord slash regeneration thing. Oh, yeah. Even though in narrative terms, it hasn't happened yet. So, for example, the Time Lords appear in the novelization of The Massacre, which comes out at around the same time as this. Yep. Even though The Massacre was written three years before the idea of Time Lords was invented. Right. So that's another of the frustrations. And again, if you're reading the books, I'm sure you had this conversation with Power of the Daleks many, many years ago. But if you're reading – and it's a great book. But if you're reading Power of the Daleks in story order, it spoils the whole of the 1970s for you. Yep. 
It sure does. It absolutely does. Whereas if you're reading it when it was released in the early 90s, it's like, oh yeah, okay, sure. And that's a point that if you're reading these in publication order, some of these things make perfect sense, but they're still massive bloopers. In fact, I'm thinking about Ian Martyr in his novelization of The Reign of Terror and how he keeps referring to the Doctor as the Time Lord. Right, right, right. It's like, uh, we don't know he's a Time Lord yet. Stop saying that. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> and unfortunately, Dudley does do a few things that aren't great. Dalton, you already mentioned the two Doctor Who jokes, even though you have to admit they're a little subtler than those tend to be. Yeah, yeah, they were worked in a little better, but still annoying. Yeah. But the idea that the Doctor's doctorate is in mathematics and moral philosophy and history? Okay, <laughs> I don't remember any of those things coming up when the Doctor's doctorate actually is addressed on screen later. And apparently, the TARDIS has a servicing certificate. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that he thinks about showing to the police, just like you'd show the servicing certificate of a car, like the title of a car here in the States. It's like, Doctor, why would you ever think that would be something that would work? <laughs> That's, yeah, maybe he's just under stress because he's under suspicion of murder. But there are some bizarre moments. I do love the fact that the Doctor completely cops to the fact that all of this could have been avoided if he had just said no to the cricket game, but he was never going to say no to the cricket game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was always going to do the cricket game. It was going to happen. Oh, there's one last thing that I think he could have done so much better. Dudley wants to play the pronoun game to cover the fact that it's George that's up in the attic. And Dalton, I think you pointed out, you said before we started recording that you already knew. Yeah, it was pretty obvious that it was George when like, the first chapter, they talk about him and talk about him having died and, and how upset it made Anne. It's like, no, he's he's alive and he's in the house with you and he was spying on you in the prologue. <laughs> I feel like if that detail had been left out, out if we didn't know about her past with being fiance with the brother if we didn't know that there would have been a little more mystery behind it or if it was introduced later but the fact that it's like front and center beginning of the book it's very obvious so that kind of ruined it but it's okay i'm not too upset <laughs> so you weren't fooled for a minute by Dudley having Lady Cranley calling out to friend of Detar rather than just calling out George. No, no, not, a, not at all. There was a little bit of suspicion when um, Tegan sees Latoni. Is it during the cricket game? Yeah. That she sees him. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of questioning what he was up to for me, but he wasn't described the same way that you know, the disfigurement that, that George has. So I knew that he obviously wasn't the same character that was in the prologue, but I didn't know kind of what his involvement with it was. Right. And I'm still kind of, um, you know, he keeps mentioning how it was the full moon. Yes. And none of that really gets explained. Not a bit of it. Unless it's just, you know, 1920s superstition about full moon and lunatics and, you know, things like that. But, 
it must be either that or they're trying to show that Latoni is still superstitious in his own way, even though you're right, it doesn't come up at all. In fact, the significance of the Black Orchid isn't really addressed all that well, either on screen or in the book. Mm -mm. Right. We know that that tribe holds it sacred enough that they tortured poor George. And in fact, the details of the torture would never have made it on TV in 1982. So having them here, you get a sense of how horrible that must have been. Mm -hmm. But they still have the Black Orchid in their house. So it must have been transported back to England. So it's like, uh, okay, okay, so this is important enough to name the entire story after. So I guess... It's strange. Every once in a while, this book will throw out something very odd. Or it'll be overpadded, such as the Doctor's perilous journey through the walls. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought that that could have been handled much more succinctly, because on screen, it even feels like it's overly long, because it takes most of episode one. Or having the Doctor exclaim, Great Gallifrey, which I don't think I have ever heard him say, ever. <laughs> it's more of a John Pertwee thing with a great jumping Jehoshaphat. Yeah, I could see him yes. doing something like that. And I meant to ask you, Jason, this whole business of Tegan having a voice that was the Bronx via Queensland. <laughs> uh, two entirely different accents. The Queen's accent is more of a nasally whine. My mother said I would never amount to anything. <laughs> Just look at me now. Whereas the Bronx is much more your classic, because the Bronx a hundred years ago was either Italian immigrants, Italian Americans, or Jewish immigrant Americans. Arthur Miller grew up in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. The Bronx accent is going to be much closer to your Tony Soprano, New York City mobster accent. So... Mm -hmm. I can see what he's aiming at, but that is geographically suspect. Yeah. And there is no way that the doctor was dreaming of becoming an engine driver when he was 560 years old. <laughs> that would mean that the third doctor was dreaming. of. Actually, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. If it's going to be anybody, it's going to be the third doctor. Taking some time away from you to... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Oh, God. There's so many things that are both good about this book and so odd about it. I just realized when he's saying the Bronx via Queensland, maybe he's talking about Queensland, Australia. He is. He is. He's talking about okay. Tegan's accent. I was conflating that with the Queens, New York, which is a different kind of New York City accent than the Bronx accent. Yeah. I think he's implying that Tegan has a very strong, very broad Australian accent, even though Janet Fielding was actually suppressing her accent quite a bit when she played Tegan. Anyone who's ever seen her doing the commentaries or has seen her at a convention knows that her accent is slightly stronger in person. Yeah, the Bronx accent does not overlap. I mean, credit for a shout out to New York City. But no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, Lordy. So anything else we want to say about this book? I just, I had written down that this is yet another case of mistaken identity which happens to the doctor a lot which even in the story he kind of admits that he gets himself into these situations but also the doubling with nissa reminded me of androids of tara oh, with romana yeah. <laughs> so again like we have this person being confused for someone that's of the upper class 
and how their place in society like puts our companion in like an awkward position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also odd, and I I just realized that was something I wanted to address, that Dudley has made Nyssa very different in characterization in this, because she is regal enough on screen to be mistaken for somebody of the upper class, but here on the page, she's delighted at the whole idea of the dresses rather than bemused as she is on screen, and she's slightly more pouty at times, and it's like, why is she acting like this? Has he not seen this character that he's writing for before? And by the way, why is it that the TARDIS isn't fucking translating anything anymore? (laughs) (laughs) The doctor's knowledge of Portuguese is said not to be all that profound, but it doesn't need to be. The TARDIS should be translating. He's done this before. This is a Terence Dudley trope. In For the Doomsday, he had Tegan, of all people, be the translator for the ancient Aborigine. And here, the Doctor doesn't know Portuguese? I know Portuguese, for crying out loud. That might be a question for Nigel Robinson, because if you look at The Reign of Terror by Ian Martyr, which also comes out in 87, (laughs) Ian and Barbara actually have to speak French, because this is before the bit about the, the TARDIS translating was part of the canon. And you mentioned the word trope. Are you guys aware that the TV Tropes website has a whole breakdown of this podcast? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) Somebody had way too much time on their hands. Yes, he did. So, (laughs) yes, there is indeed a breakdown. And thank you for reminding me, Jason, because I should probably remind listeners and whoever did that breakdown, that it probably needs to be updated soon (laughs) because it only goes up to a certain point. But yes, not saying it's anybody we know. I'm just realizing we forgot about the stroking off that happened. Oh my God, the stroking off. We forgot about that. Oh my God. You're right. Well, that's the cover painting, surely. Well... Different type of stroking off. But come to think of it, you're right. Because Come to think of it. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, Check, please. Oh, oh, for sorry. goodness I'll sake. No, you don't have to. Very briefly, you, you for, those, <laughs> for those who haven't read the book, there's this fairly lengthy sequence in which Nissa is talking to someone at the party. And he's talking about having won for Oxford the voting competition. And the boating competition obviously involves actually steering with the oars, which is stroking. So he's stroking off. Yes, again, this is 1987. A lot of this stuff goes on in the books in 1987. (laughs) There's a lot of sneaking it past the censors. (sighs) Boy, howdy, is there ever. (laughs) Oh, God. So shall we go to Goodreads? Please. (laughs) Yes. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is... 3.49. 
The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. And speaking of which, nobody, nobody in our Goodreads group actually reviewed this. <laughs> that tells me something. Huh. I had to go looking for reviews. So Polly Bachelor gives it four stars and says, I decided to read after watching Grandchester 3.2, where you see Peter Davison in full cricket outfit. I assume that's season three, episode two, which made me think of a cricket-heavy Doctor Who episode, and Black Orchid came to mind, one of the first classic Who I remember buying when I was younger. This story was historical-based that's their error, which made a nice change, felt very Agatha Christie murder mystery in the 1920s, and reminded me of New Who episode The Unicorn and the Wasp. Yes, it does, actually. I think Dudley did a very good job at fleshing the story out further. I, I, I assume you meant fleshing it out. I quite enjoyed and felt a very English story. <laughs> Yeah, parts of it need flushing, probably. David Layton gives it three stars and says Terrence Dudley's novelization of his own teleplay is actually better than the original episode. This episode was a two-parter that felt truncated in two parts. The novel format allows Dudley to fill in some gaps and add some depth to the characters. The story itself is a typical 1920s murder mystery adventure, and in this, Dudley has perhaps gone a bit overboard. There are some clumsy bits of foreshadowing of the little did he know that in the very future he would be in deep trouble variety it's light and fun and not much else and finally Heidi with an eye that's happening a lot lately finally Heidi Smith with an eye gives it three stars but she seems to be talking about something else entirely because she says I am so excited about the discovery of all the Doctor Who 50th anniversary shorts which are done by all the authors I already love it's like the perfect match I have really enjoyed the variety of worlds and troubles that these adventures explore I hope to read them all one day and then there's a paragraph break and she says this retro story was definitely retro and not my favorite. <laughs> God. Yeah. Just because it's on Goodreads doesn't mean that the people there are actually able to read sometimes. So, <laughs> Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this stimulating text? Yeah, it's Goodreads, not well read. Um, <laughs> I don't. I'll give this I'll go 2.5 I'll go right in the middle um I just I don't even know what to say it needs to be edited it severely needs to be edited because if it's a two-part story you know like we said there are Pertwee stories that were six parts that were 120 pages this one's 150 yeah in the version that I have it could very easily have chopped about 30 pages off and it would have felt fine it wouldn't have felt as bloated as it does to me. I enjoy the companions. I think that this is kind of what I've been missing the past few stories, seeing them just having a good time and kind of, there's not a whole lot for them to do other than enjoy the party. But even the point that Tegan makes to get them taken along with the doctor so that they all stay together feels right. And it, it feels very appropriate. So mm -hmm. even though there's not anything that's like sticking out as, super horrible other than needing to be edited just like my comments right now but yeah 2.5 it's it's not complete trash but i just it needs to be a little shorter okay and jason i'm gonna give this a 3.25 and i'll tell you why if we're doing the academic rating scale 65 out of 100 is passing 3.25 out of 5 is 65 out of 100. So this is a passing grade mm. for me. This is not one of my comfort books. 
when I was a kid, this was not the book I was bringing on car rides to read for the seventh time. When I'm looking to read one of my favorite targets, this is not top of the list. But again, considering that if you're looking at hardcover releases, Pip and Jane have their first two books come out in hardcover in 87, <laughs> paperback in 88. I should have clarified that earlier. This is the era of the target line where a lot of the books that were coming out were not great writing because you have a lot of these you know, mm-hmm. first-time novelists coming back to the show for the first time 20 years after they were televised. I don't think it's the second best book of 1987, but for 1987, it is a good book, and it fixes some problems with the TV story, and it's got some really good passages. So not one of my favorites. So I think a literal passing grade is, is fair. So 3.25, I think, is a good way of not overselling it. All righty. And as for me, for much the same reasons as both of you, I would give this a 3.5, mainly because the things I like about this book, I really like. But oh my god, are they balanced out by the things that I think are dire. (laughs) So I would normally, if the book were as good as some of its best moments, I would be on board with giving this a 4. I especially like all of Dudley's fixes, because there have been things about the story that have bothered me for years, and they are fixed in the book. They are really quite good in the book. In fact, they're better in the book. But then we have all the cricket. And then we have all the walking through the walls. And then we have other bits of silliness, such as ejaculations here and there. And it's like, uh, so I'd say a (laughs) 3.5 and (laughs) call it a day. (laughs) So thank you both. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we welcome back Jim Sangster to discuss Ian Martyr's novelization of Eric Sayward's Earthshock. Jason, where do we find your podcast? I was on Anchor, which has now been renamed Spotify for Podcasters, but I am pretty much on every major service. You can find me on Google Podcasts or iTunes or in the Apple Store, just about anywhere else. The old URL was anchor.fm slash Lit. D-O-C-T-O-R-U lit, I believe. That old URL should still work, even though it's now uh, Spotify for Podcasters. If all else fails, and it inevitably will, you can find me on Twitter, <laughs> to coin a phrase, at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. Okay. And in the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, excluding Spotify, whatever it's called these days. If all else fails you, Ibid. Email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.